We're going to take a moment now to dismiss our kids to head upstairs for kids crew. So this is all of our children who are sixth grade and under. They will have a time of worship designed specifically for them on their level engage with the truth of God's word. It's an awesome thing. And uh, parents, if you are, maybe you're new and you're thinking, where will I find them uh, when we're done? I suppose if you want to find them, right? Uh, you'll be able to locate them on the east side on the second level. You'll see that as they head out the door here, they'll head upstairs and just beyond that room is our kids' crew room and that's where they'll be after our service today. Mark chapter 14 will be our text for this morning's message. We're actually going to cover a lot of ground in Scripture today. We're going to be reading a lot of verses because as we near the end of the this, what we call the passion, right? What we, as we near the end of this, this section, this, uh, this part of the story of Jesus, kind of the unfolding story of his betrayal at the hands of one of his own disciples, we find several things that we're going to tie together because there's a common thread in, in each of these and we will weave all of this together. So we'll begin in Mark chapter 14 verse 26 and keep reading from there in our text today. You know, recently I was working on an assignment and uh, there have been many late nights lately uh, trying to get some writing done and, and uh, meeting some deadlines that I have for papers and things. I'm working on my doctorate right now and so there have just been some, some late nights and lots of reading and lots of writing and, and all these things that kind of all go hand in hand. And one of the big differences between doing school now at 40 and when I was doing school at 20 working on my undergrad was that in those days when I would get to the end of a semester or near a deadline, if I didn't have everything done, I would just pull an all-nighter, right? I mean, it was no big deal. You'd just stay up all night. You'd work on everything. And sometimes even the little bit of pressure that you felt because you had procrastinated on a few things really kind of helped you in that moment. Maybe you got through school like that as well. Uh, it doesn't work that way at 40. I, try, I tried to do, I didn't really think I would have to be up all night, but one of these nights I was working late into the night and, and I thought, well, I'll just stay up until I get everything done. I mean, I'll just drink a bunch of coffee and I'll just, and you know, by about 1130, uh, my eyes were heavy and I'm thinking to myself, it was a reminder that I think the reason I got out of student ministry was because of lock-ins, right? I mean, just that sort of thing just didn't work anymore. Uh, at least I didn't work with that anymore. And, uh, and I stayed up late one night and, uh, and, and got a bunch done, but late wasn't nearly as late as it used to be, you know. Uh, that was the truth. Well, we, we find in this, uh, in this section, in this story, that essentially an all-nighter in the life of Jesus. And it's interesting that as we see these events unfolding, in this particular night, this very important night in the life of Jesus, we learn some, some very important truth that points us to his ultimate Purpose, And I want us to see that as we just follow this story as it unfolds for us, beginning in Mark chapter 14, verse 26. 
If you remember last week, we left off Jesus celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples. We talked about the fact that the Last Supper was really a new beginning because it was the beginning of what Jesus called the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. And so it wasn't really the end of anything. It was the beginning of something beautiful and new. And now we see these events transpire that will bring this to pass, just as he's foretold. Verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, by the way, this is really a continuation from the Passover celebration. They would sing what were known as the Hallel hymns. These are certain psalms that would be sung. Psalm, most likely in this case, Psalm 118, that would be sung as sort of the completion or at the, at the finish of the Passover celebration. So they sang a hymn, or we might think of it as reciting a psalm together. And they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting from Zechariah there. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. When they, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remember we, we talked about in the celebration of the Passover, he would have held the, the cup of redemption. It was the third cup of the four cups in the Passover. That, that's what he's referring to here, this cup. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Peter couldn't do the all-nighter, right? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and said the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know how to, what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, but you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. And he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So here is this here is this these events transpiring just as Jesus had foretold, that one of his own, one of the ones with whom he shared the Last Supper would be his betrayer. And so as we study through this text, we're going to see the, the unfolding story in four different uh, layers. And the first one is this, this idea of abandonment. In these verses that we've read, we see 
we see the abandonment here of the disciples with Jesus that though they desired to remain with him, in reality, when the pressure was on, in the heat of the moment, they all abandoned him. You remember the words of Peter spoken so passionately, so boldly. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same, it tells us, right? That's what it said in verse 31. So Peter made this bold declaration, but he wasn't alone because they all agreed with Peter. Jesus, if we have to die with you, we will die with you. And yet, at the hour of his arrest, where are the disciples? They fled. They scattered. They abandoned him. I find it interesting that in the, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus predicts his death many times. Go back to our study in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, chapter 10. Again, in chapter 13, we saw elements of this, that Jesus was telling them of the future. He was foretelling these events. He, he told them that he would die. He knew that this would be his ultimate end because this was the purpose, after all, for which he had come into the world. But in each of these instances, if you go back, study the response of the disciples, in each of the instances where Jesus predicted his death, it was met with bravado, right? Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I'll stand by you to the end. Peter told him in Mark chapter 8, we won't let this happen. He was saying, I won't, Jesus, I won't let this happen. I won't let them do this to you. Remember Jesus' response to Peter was, get behind me, Satan. In each of these instances, it's met with this, this form of bravado and even in selfishness, right? We find in Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10, especially Jesus, as he predicts his death, the disciples' response was, well then, Jesus, after you die, which one of us can sit at your right hand? Let it be us. Let it be us. Let us sit with you in your right hand in glory. Nowhere in any of those responses do we see an element of humility? Do we find real brokenness? Do we, do we even see that the disciples grasp the weight of what Jesus is telling them? And you know, I find that that's so true of us much of the time. That the, through the Holy Spirit's prompting, through the, through the word of Scripture, God works to speak his truth to us, to, to reveal his 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 purpose and his will for our lives. And so much of the time we receive it selfishly rather than molding our lives around his truth, rather than shaping our lives to what the word says, where God is working, the spirit is directing. So much of the time our response is selfish. It's inward. What's in it for me? What, how is this going to affect me? We, we think of it in terms of how, how if we follow him, how others may look at us and how that might elevate our status or something of that, right? We respond the same way as the disciples. Disciples today tend to respond much like the disciples in the time of Jesus. So much of the time we think of ourselves as different, right? The saying of uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. that we, we think we can see things clearly because we have a little bit of perspective with history on our side. We can see how all of this worked for the disciples. And the truth really is our response is much the same because really we're much the same. We love the Lord. We, we, we want to follow him. And yet in our selfishness, in our sin, 
honestly, so much of the time we get in our own way, just like we see in the lives of the disciples here. And so what do I want you to understand is that you are like these guys, right? That's really the point that I want you to see as you study the text. Because so much of the time, we tend to do exactly what Peter did. Peter said, Lord, if I have to die with you, I won't abandon you. And so much of the time we think, you know, if that was me, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have abandoned Jesus. And that's the very heart of Peter at work in us. And what we need, we need to identify that. We need to see that for what it is. Because in the same way that the disciples abandoned Jesus in this moment, I'm afraid that much of the time we tend to abandon our faith when the pressure is on as well. You ever find this to be true in yourself, sadly, that in the heat of the moment, your response is not Christ-like? In the heat of the moment, your words are not honoring to him. You may strike with anger or, or there may be, there may be that, that bit of selfish greed inside of you or, or maybe, maybe those, those darker parts of yourself that you're not proud of rise to the surface in those moments. Because we do now what the disciples did then. And that is when the pressure is on, we abandon, we walk away, we, we, we forget our faith. And the point I want you to see is, as we work, work through this, we are so much like them. We can identify so closely with them. And beautifully, what Jesus does for them, he also did for us. Let's keep reading. So we've seen abandonment in the story. The next thing we'll see is accusation. Accusation. We keep reading in chapter 14. Let's start in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. Though what's interesting is that this is sort of a, uh, we might refer to it today as sort of a kangaroo court, right? This is, this, they didn't even have the authority ultimately. They took him before the high priest, but there was no authority for the high priest to do anything because they were under sovereign Roman rule. And yet they've trumped up these charges. They've gathered together their witnesses. They're, they're making their case ultimately to present him to their higher authorities. They led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief, uh, excuse me, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, bearing false witness. That, right? That's just a flowery way to say that they lied. They were lying. And they said in verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ Son of the blessed. And Jesus said to him, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy and the guards received him with blows verse 66 
And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said to Peter, again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And then in verse 1 of chapter 15, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Here they are making accusations against Jesus. They're bringing up really false charges. They're, th- these are lies. Not that there isn't an element of truth to them. In fact, Jesus did say that he would destroy the temple and that he would rebuild it again in, thir- in three days. But you see that there were false testimony and that even in that, they didn't agree. That their, their testimonies against him, the charges that they would bring against him, their accusations didn't even match. There was no agreement because, because they were lies. Because the nature of it all, it was, it was built on a framework of lies and deceit. All of this was designed to have him put to death. But there was no truth to any of it, right? Because in fact, Jesus was perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. But even though the charges against him were false, the consequences of those charges were very real. That if, in fact, they were able to to get their way using these manipulations, these false charges, these false accusations against him, the consequences were very real, that Jesus would receive punishment for crimes he didn't commit. There have been a number of stories over the years of people who were accused of a crime and maybe sentenced and, and they served time and later maybe through uh, DNA, you know, advancements in DNA testimony or different things that it was, it was discovered that they were innocent or at least in as much as the, they couldn't be proving guilty or that the evidence maybe now pointed to someone else or another direction. And anytime a story like that comes out, you know, it's a, it's a big deal, as well it should be, that someone has been wrongfully accused of a crime, wrongfully even perhaps wrongfully uh, convicted of a crime and served time. And when you see those stories play out, we, we think, man, how difficult would it be to forgive if you were the one against whom the false charges were made, if you were the one 
who was convicted of a crime that you didn't commit and you served time and later the truth came out. You think, how hard would it be to forgive? How hard would it be to move on beyond that when false charges, when, the, when, when these things had been done against you? And yet what do we see here? We see Jesus himself the victim of this. The false charges, the the accusations, the wrongs that he didn't do. Listen, if you've ever felt wronged by someone else, maybe, certainly, I mean, no one in this room has served time in prison, at least that I'm aware of, and then later been uh, exonerated for the crimes that you didn't, in fact, commit, right? I mean, I'm not aware of that uh, story. But nonetheless, we've all felt accusation. We've all felt condemned by others. We've all felt accused. Maybe, uh, maybe someone has pointed the finger for something that we didn't do or someone else believed something against us that wasn't true. We've all been there and we've felt the, those feelings, a mixture of emotion. And, and we've even wondered, how do I forgive? How do I move on? And we see that Jesus identifies even with, with this part of our experience, right? Because He was falsely accused. And though the charges were false, the consequences were real with these accusations that they made against him. But at the very heart of this, at the very heart of the accusations, at the very heart of these charges against Jesus, this is the point that I I want you to to key in on, to, to, to highlight, if you will, in your mind, to don't miss this point is that in the moment when Jesus had the opportunity to speak, no, I didn't do any of these things. No, these charges are false. No, these are lies. What did he do instead? He remained silent, right? To the point that Pilate even says, have you no answer to make? Look at all these charges. Look at everything that has been brought against you. Don't you have anything to say? Speak, Jesus. Prove yourself to be innocent. And certainly, He could have, but instead he chose to remain silent. In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet Isaiah penned those beautiful words, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, though he did not open his mouth. We know that Jesus remained silent, not because because he, he was scared or threatened, but because he knew that he had come into this world to offer himself. The reason he remained silent is so that his resurrection power might speak an even better word, that his blood, as the writer of Hebrews says, would speak a better word than the blood of Abel, meaning that Jesus, with his death, paid the price for our sin. And so he endured accusations against him that were not true in order that he might stand in your place to pay the price for your sin. But we continue. It's not just his abandonment at the hands of his disciples. It's not just the false accusations against him at the hands of the the chief priest and the elders, the, the religious leaders, but also affliction, affliction at the hands of those who arrested him, punishment, Verse 6, chapter 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. 
And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, that means having punished him with the cat of nine tails, a Roman instrument of torture. He delivered him to be crucified. In verse 16, as the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And all of this, they did all of these afflictions, right, in fulfillment of the word of prophecy, the very words that Jesus had spoken. So we see here his, his affliction, his punishment. We might even call it his torture because when you, when you study the instruments of their punishment, it was torturous, right? This scourging was a Roman instrument called the cat of nine tails. It was a whip fashioned with a handle and nine different straps of leather. And at the ends of these straps of leather would be tied fragments of bone or rock or glass, even perhaps of metal. And they would use that to to punish, literally to tear the flesh from their victim. It was the most gruesome, most torturous form of punishment that they had, save only for the crucifixion, which was reserved for the most traitorous of criminals. And all of this, all of this, the crown of thorns, the scourging, the spitting, the mocking, the, all of it, Jesus endured for us. In fact, consider the verbs in this passage. Think about verbs are action words, right? Verbs are the action words. They tell us what's happening in a story. Think about the verbs in this In in this passage, in this story, Jesus was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was accused. He was denied by his own. He was delivered over to them wrongfully. He was beaten, mocked, spit upon, crucified. And all of this he endured so that he might pay the price for your sin. Jesus was afflicted so that you might be forgiven. And that's the beauty of this. It's the beauty of the story of Jesus. It's the beauty of the gospel. He endured what he did not deserve so that we could be given what we do not deserve. He was abandoned. He was accused of wrong. He was afflicted at the hands of those whom he came to save. And ultimately, through all of this, he made atonement for our sin. Now consider the word atonement for a moment. Even just as you look at the word, what do you notice? You notice that 
if you break it down into its parts, you notice the words at one, at one right? Because ultimately atonement is about things being reconciled together. When something is atoned for, it is, it is paid for, it is reconciled. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing here. He is reconciling us to God the Father by offering his own blood as the blood of sacrifice. That's precisely what he told his disciples that he would do. And now it's exactly what he is doing. That he would pay the price for our sin. Let's keep reading our final verse. And when they had mocked him, verse 20 says, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And we see in this story beautifully that Jesus endured punishment that he did not deserve. Abandonment, accusations, affliction at the hands of the very ones he came to save. And all of this he did, enduring punishment in its many forms, in order to atone for your sin, in order to atone for the sins of all those who by faith would trust in him, place their faith in him. In spite of the abandonment, the accusation, the affliction, we find that the ultimate result of Jesus' sacrifice is atonement. That because of his payment for sin, because Jesus, the sinless, spotless lamb, the perfect son of God, because he offered his life for us, we can be made one with God through faith in him. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the power of the story of Christ. And by faith, for those of us who trust in Jesus, it becomes for us the testimony of our lives. Has there ever been a moment in your life when you know that you have trusted in Jesus by faith, believing in him? Has there ever been that moment when you have, you have surrendered your life to him, that you have allowed his death, his, his, the, the, the punishment that he endured, that you have allowed that to to become really in reality the payment for your sin. See, Jesus didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve this punishment because he committed no sin. And yet he willingly endured it so that his death might pay the price for your sin. Has there ever been that moment by faith when you've trusted in him? The Bible makes it plain that if we believe in him, that if we call on the name of Jesus as it refers to, or even as it says very specifically in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts, that we will be saved. Have you ever believed in him, confessed him as Lord and Savior of your life? I know of no more appropriate response to any of See, there are many who hear this story and they think, well, that's a great story. I'm, I'm, I'm glad Jesus, I'm glad that he was willing to, to do all of this. But those who truly believe don't just hear this and think that's a great story. They hear this and they say, this is my story. 
Because Jesus did for me what I could never do for myself. Jesus endured all of this to pay the price for my sin so that I could be forgiven, so that I could be set free. In a moment, we'll have a time of response, a time that we call the, the invitation. Because in that moment, as we stand together and we sing a song, we invite you to respond by faith. And Today, if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, if you're ready to call on him by faith, trusting him as Lord and Savior, believing that he took the punishment that he did not deserve to pay the price for your sin, if you're ready to confess him as Savior and Lord, then during our invitation today, I would invite you, come and and let one of our staff, let us just pray with you a simple prayer of faith that you might confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you might surrender your life to him. You would receive the forgiveness that comes with faith in this perfect spotless lamb who gave his life to atone for our sin. Jesus endured the cross so that we might be one with him. Would you be ready and willing to respond in faith, surrendering your life to the Savior who gave everything for you? I invite you now to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And I want to lead us in a word of prayer. And even as I pray, the reason I have you bow your heads and close your eyes is not because I'm about to do any kind of, right? There's no magic happening here. There's no, this is all about focus in this moment. This is all about us focusing our hearts on the sacrifice of Jesus. This is all about us setting our minds to this truth and considering how it is that God would have us to respond in obedience and submission to this word of truth today. And even as we pray, I invite you that you humbly ask, God, how would you have me respond to this word of truth today? Lord, now as we humble ourselves before you, I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would direct our hearts to respond in obedience and submission to this word of truth. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never trusted in you by faith, again, through the work of your Holy Spirit, would you prompt their heart? Would you lead them now to to step out and, and to come forward this morning that they might surrender their life to you? We recognize that you endured what you did not deserve so that we might receive something we do not deserve forgiveness, redemption. And out of hearts of gratitude, we want to give our lives back to you now. Receive our lives as our offering of thanks. We pray in your name, Jesus.